You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with Dr. Stephen Kissler, epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome back. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Matt? Good. Hey, this is me being totally oblivious. Did you have facial hair last week? Uh, I did not. Um, this is, <laughs> I this just is, now this realized is a that. week's worth of forgetting to shave here. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Man, we just we need to do a collection for supporting our epidemiologists around the world. Uh, well, it looks fabulous on you. You should keep it yeah, going. Thank you. I'm glad that most people can't see this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Only only the handful of people on the Facebook group. How's yeah. your week been? It's been all right. Definitely busy. Exciting with some more of the new vaccine news coming out. Yeah. We're just kind of chugging along with our research over here. Yeah. yeah, I am super excited to talk about that in a little bit. I pu- I proposed this question to you before we went, but I want to throw it again to you just for the listeners can hear. I was asking you about how, you know, here we have these ups and, ups and downs with COVID cases. And I was curious, in light of your studies, how does your studies like research impact or is impacted by the change and fluctuations of COVID in, around the world? I mean, are you, is it like you're directly impacted or you just kind of arise above the top and do your own research? Yeah, it's the research itself really isn't, at least since this spring, hasn't really been affected that much by the changing case counts themselves. We just kind of keep doing our work. And, you know, a lot of the questions we're trying to answer are independent of, of how many cases are actually circulating. But what does change is, is the conversations surrounding it, for sure. Since this spring, I've been talking with journalists pretty regularly and also just friends and family and things. And I can definitely see a change in the amount of interest and the types of questions that are being asked over time. So in that sense, it does get busier, but not necessarily from the research side. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, at least Lisa, I feel like you don't, I'm glad, I'm thankful that you don't feel like your, your research is constantly changing every week, depending on the media. So that's great that you're right. you know, <laughs> a little bit of your own, your own research. Uh, a few other things to chat about briefly. Oh, I just want to drop this. Mark, I think, sent this to us. He can't be with us today. But back in April, I was joking about how we need to do a video with my college students of like how we save the world and they just laying on the couch and just eating potato chips and just like totally haven't showered in a week. And you ask them what they're doing, like, hey, I'm saving the world, right? Sounds so courageous. And, and so apparently Mark just showed us there's a, ger- there's a German video. So it's a translated English of the exact same thing about like in the future of this guy who's like 70 talking about 2020 and the sacrifices. And then all I did was just surf the TV and eat potato chips. And that's how you save the world. So I thought it was hilarious. We'll put in the show notes. I was going to do the clip, but then I realized it's all in German. So in the subtitles <laughs> yeah, are, are actually visual, unless <laughs> your native language is, is German. So yeah, I'll be in the show notes. It's hilarious. You got to watch it. Check it out. Reviews. We love them. Keep them coming. Uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts and the show notes. Show notes. Show notes. It helps us rise from the top. That's the second time I've said that in like two months. I have no idea. Is that like it's a Canadian a accent or I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, we'd love to get them. So leave us, leave whatever you think you can. Leave in a comment is even better. If you want to support us, as little as $5 a month helps us go a long way. Do that patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or a one-time uh, payment, Venmo, uh, PayPal, all in the show notes. And that is about it. We have a lot to cover, believe it or not, even though it's only been seven days. Let's start with just the increased cases. I'd love to get your feedback of where we're at right now. Again, I think it was over 180,000 cases in a day. It was it Saturday. It seems like all the comments on the media are saying this seems like it's just going to continue. There's no there's no end in sight right now unless there is something extre- extreme done. 
and I'm not advocating for some kind of universal lockdown, that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that's the response. So I'd love to get here where you're like state of the union of where we're at right now when it comes to COVID cases, the, the, the growth and what you think our future uh, holds for us. And then finally, like, what would you, what, what, what are some things we should be doing right now? Yeah. So it's, it's alarming for sure. You know, last yeah. week we were oh, talking gosh. about exponential growth and that was just after we surpassed the hundred thousand case count mark. Right. And we're uh, yep. well on track. You know, we were talking about, you know, maybe we'll hit 200,000 by Thanksgiving. I mean, now there's a good chance we'll hit 200,000 by Tuesday. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. I, I was so surprised when I, I was just, when I saw it in the news yesterday, like 184,000, I'm like, man, this is going way faster than expected. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's exponential growth, right? Like that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. it. And it, and it, and it, again, it matches up with a lot of what we were seeing earlier this spring, where the doubling time for cases is on the order of 10 to 14 days. This is actually even going a little bit faster than that, which suggests a little yeah. bit of, there is also some increase in testing tiny bit. Yeah. But it's it's driven by an increase in cases, and it's just a epidemic doing what epidemics do, and so there's there's a lot of spread, and it's 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 not a great trajectory to be on, especially going into the holidays coming up, which I, I know we'll talk a little bit about too, just Thanksgiving yeah. plans and those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. you know that said, all of the things that we know to do remain true. Yeah. It's about physical distancing. It's about wearing masks. It's about washing our hands and just being mindful of the spaces that we're in, reducing gathering sizes. All of these same sorts of things are absolutely effective. I think that the the important thing, though, is that for many of us living in places like Boston, where it's getting a lot colder very quickly, these all of these things, especially the gathering things are becoming more difficult behaviorally. And there may also be climate weather related sort of boost that the virus gets this time of year as well. So while all of the same things that worked earlier still work now, we actually have to be extra vigilant and extra sort of put in a little bit more effort now because because this virus is harder to control in the winter than in the summer. Yeah. And so that's, that's just the situation we're in. And so, like you said, I think that there's, I I do hope that we'll be able to avoid, you know, national widespread lockdowns, these kinds of things. But I do think that some of the pragmatic measures that different governments are taking to, again, limit gathering sizes, or at least put out advisories for these kinds of things are really important right now, because we have have way too much infection in the community to maintain control of it right now. And it's really important to start turning that around, especially as we go into a time of year with the holidays where there are going to be ample opportunities for just flare ups to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. So this is a, a few things and I had this in my notes kind of like disjointed, but I think they're now really, really well connected. There's a couple things. Number one, we're talking about this increase of surge of infections. I saw two articles. We were joking about this. One said basically, oh, it's unknown where people are getting infected. And then the very next article said a different one, obviously a different publication from the Washington Post versus the Wall Street Journal. Social gatherings are fueling the coronavirus surge. So first of all, do we know where this is coming from? Because these are two suggesting articles, different opinions. And uh, you were mentioned there was a piece that you've read that kind of showed where these where these virus or where this transmission is principally kind of focused at yeah so this is this is a recent article which i will pull up right here so this is published in nature which is sort of one of the 
you know, big, bad journals. That's like, uh, very, very high profile. A lot of people read it yeah. and by big, bad, I mean, big, big, good. Like they, they, they publish a lot of good stuff. <laughs> like right? bad in the, in the, in the eighties. Like that's, that's bad, right. Man. That's right. I mean, that's good. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this article is titled mobility network models of COVID-19 explain inequities and inform reopening. And this is by Serena Chang and colleagues. I, I think that it's open access at this point. So you can take a look at it yourself. And they were using these mobility data and, and linking it up. I, I need to read this in detail, but linking it up with case counts and basically doing their own sophisticated contact tracing initiative mm. um, with thousands and thousands of cases. And ultimately what they came up with is this stratified estimate of the, essentially the additional infections that different venues in society are contributing. So Mm. They weren't looking at like personal social gatherings. They were more looking at like sectors of society where infection is happening. And there's, there's sort of a whole gradient of different areas that seem to be contributing to a lot of infection. But what they found is that really far and away, the greatest number of infections that they were able to trace were able to be traced back to full service restaurants, basically in person Mm. dining in indoor dining. And so that was like a very, a very substantial, seemingly driver of spread. And then beyond that, some of the other high hitters were fitness centers, cafes and snack bars, hotels and motels, limited service restaurants, these kinds of things. And then it was after that, you know, sort of the next tier down, which wasn't contributing as much, but still had some transmission were like grocery stores and department stores and gas stations and that sort of thing. So it sort of gives you this, this rough sense of like different tiers mm. of, of, of where spread is happening. And so according to this article, it really is a lot of spread happening in restaurants and service settings. And so those are areas where we'll have to really focus a lot on limiting spread as we're going into the fall, because we know that those, those are sort of the, you know, we can look at it from one perspective and say like, oh, you know, these things are contributing a lot to spread. We have to, you know, like these things are bad, but calling things bad doesn't really help much usually from a public health perspective. And I think <laughs> no. we can see them as opportunities too, right? Like if we want to maximize the value of our efforts, we need to know where to focus them. And yeah. so we're going to probably gain a lot more by figuring out how to make indoor dining safe, if it can be safe, than focusing on some of these other places. Like if we had a choice to focus yeah. on making grocery stores safer or restaurants safer, and we could only pick one, should probably pick the restaurants because you're going to get two orders of magnitude higher reduction in spread if you do wow. that. Yeah. So, so that's the real value of this kind of work, I think. That's great. And I, I'm curious in that article, did it put in as part of the research, like like working at your own business, going to work, that kind of stuff? Was that even on the radar, or is that such, such a low? Because I'm here. The reason why I bring this up is because our governor here at in Colorado wasn't a mandate, but just suggested made a suggestion that please start working from home if you can, right? So I didn't know if there's a relationship. Is that a place of high transmission or did that not even get into the equation in this study? It's, I mean, of course it depends so much on where you work. And so <laughs> sure. the the issue, I, I think that the concern there, or I mean, yes, it does make sense that if you can work from home to work from home, I think, because sure. just limiting any opportunities for spread is a good thing. But I think the issue there is that a lot of the jobs that you can do from home were already pretty low risk for transmission. Like yeah, when I was just there true. sitting in my office, if I was wearing a mask and just typing away at my computer, I could go a day without talking to anybody without even like <laughs> being face to face with any, like I probably wasn't going to spread yeah. COVID even if I was in the office, but I can work from home very easily. But of course that's not the case for waiter, waitress, chef, you know, like you, yep. you can't yeah. really do those things from home. Yeah. So I think that's yeah. part of the issue is that 
asking people to work from home when they can is great, but also isn't really striking right at the heart of, of the issue. Yeah. Sure. And I, I totally ask that question out of just simply of a bias, because I think my particular profession, my full-time one, is just an unusual one where it's, it's it, in some sense, for its long-term effects, really requires like face-to-face encounter. But technically speaking, we could do it from home, but yeah. it's but its greatest leverage is really... It's, so then we're in this like unique situation, not that unique, but like, okay, should we? What's the sacrifice? So, but it was purely selfish. I wanted to throw your, throw your way. Okay. So I want to put this in context because we've been talking about increase of 100, over 180,000 infections. I'm, I'm, I've, from what I've looked at yesterday, that the death, the mortality rate is still inching its way. It's not necessarily following anything like the positive cases. And so there could be a, this is like this demotion of it's not that big of a deal. And I, I shared this with you, Stephen, it, to help put things in a greater context. I saw this article last week, I think it was, it said 80% of those who died of COVID-19 in Texas County jails were never convicted of a crime. So the reason why I bring this up is for like 30 seconds, just to, again, to expose the complexity of the transmission and doing our part to be able to help reduce the amount and level by which it's transmitted to other people beyond our social settings. That I have a friend, it was probably three months ago, I saw her on Facebook pleading on, on YouTube, going live, trying to get signatures because her father is in prison in Texas and has a very, very high susceptibility rate of COVID, could have pretty strong negative consequences. And whoever it was the, the, the of the prison would not allow anyone to go away temporarily to be able to find refuge until this subsides. And so she was pleading for her father to be able to be released and go someplace else just until this they could get under control. And just, again, seeing the complexity, it's so easy to see in our own myopic world here, me in this remote town of Colorado and how no big deal, you know, it's not that it's not going to bother me. It, w- it would bother my mother-in-law, but it expands so much more than in places that we're not even aware of. Right. So I just want to drop that to everybody to, to, to hear, to listen to, to take in that this affects in places that we have no concept of even, it's not part of our daily rhythm of life. So it's important. It's really, even if the, if the deaths are low, who it impacts like you said over and over, Stephen, it's it's always the most vulnerable. It's always the ones who actually don't have that freedom and flexibility, and that's why we're doing this. So that's a great illustration of that point for sure. Okay, next thing I want to talk about. We talked about increase of cases. I want to help us navigate hospitalizations. Again, once again, I know we talked about this. It was three months ago. I had a friend dismissing this like surge of hospitalizations, trying to tell me, I'm listening to the media. It's, it's just media related. Then you help to expose that, say, no, here's the complexity of it. Yes, you could probably see if there's 200 hospitals, maybe only 50 are overrun, but guess where they're at, blah, blah, blah. So where are we at at this state of the game in hospitalizations in our country? I know it's a complex uh, question because it depends, right? And also help us navigate where could we look to to help understand where this is going and which hospitals are are suffering the most. Yeah, this is this continues to be tricky. So there are a number of factors in play here. So part of the reason we don't actively observe hospitals being overrun on the news is is because of the patient privacy guidelines that we have in the U.S., where you just don't have news cameras in hospitals. That's just like not something that yeah. you do. So you don't get to see the hospitals where you have patients who are being treated in the hallways and these kinds of things, which of course, like I want to be clear is not, not all, and probably not even, I mean, it's not the majority of hospitals right now, but there are some, many of them in the upper Midwest at the moment, just like there were in New York city earlier on and some in Florida when the outbreak was really raging there in yeah. the Southeast. 
So it happens and it, it, it continues to be the case that this epidemic strikes different places with different severity at different times. And that's just, just the way that it goes. And so it's not your hospital right now, but it, it very well could be. And that's where the question of exponential growth comes in here too, because I mean, I, I've, I've heard a couple of interviews by policymakers, politicians, even hospital administrators who are sort of talking about how their hospital capacity is really robust because they could deal with a, you know, even, even if the, I, one of them said, like, even if the number of cases coming in doubled, we'd be able to handle that. And it's like, well, good, because they could double next week. Yeah. You know, like that's the, the speed with which these things can change is just mind blowing. And so, so it's tricky because there's part of the reason there's so much alarm going on around the scientific community and in the media is because it's true. There are still a lot of hospitals that are not currently overrun, but they could be if things continue going at this pace. And and that's the concern is we're trying to avoid that. Now that said, hospitals have learned a lot. They've figured out how to rearrange their staff so that they can optimize who's working where and making sure that they have the staff to care for patients and the space. And they've really spent a lot of time this summer preparing for this fall and winter surge, knowing that it was coming. And, and so that's helping a lot so that hospitals that might have been overrun in the spring now have a lot more resilience this fall and this winter. And so, so in that sense, and some like hospitals have been very creative in increasing their capacity, increasing their ability to care for patients. And so all of that is really good too. And, and ends up serving the patients who do come through the door much better. So, so, so that's sort of a bit on the good news side as well. Yeah, so yeah. it's still a very complex problem here, but it, it hospital capacity and main, maintaining, yeah, maintaining hospital resources, staff, making sure that the staff are not burning out, making sure that the staff are not getting mm. sick themselves yeah, um, sure. is one of the most important things we can do because that, that I think is our greatest vulnerability here. Because if, if, if hospitals start to be overrun, then that, that poses a much greater problem to health. And, you know, to equip me and equip the listeners as well, if I were to look into this, like, hey, where are we at? Instead of just trusting whatever media outlet, because you did this like for three or four months ago, you just looked it up yourself. Is there a place that is trusted that we can go or do you have to go from hospital to hospital? Is it a state by state like website you go to? How do we look at where we're at? Yeah. So many state departments of health. So for example, the one that I looked at earlier this year was the Florida yeah. Department of Health. And, and they had a okay. spreadsheet that was just listing their hospital beds and capacities and which hospitals were or weren't at capacity. Yeah. And so that's you know just published by them. To get a sense of the number of hospitalizations, the COVID tracking project, which is where a lot of like New York Times bases their data on them. I think a lot of Johns Hopkins portal gets their data from the COVID tracking project. They do a really good job of tracking hospitalizations by state, and I think even by community in some cases. And so you can go there to see what's happening as well. And so, yeah, there are different different sources of information for sure, okay. where where you can look at what's going on in any particular community at any given time. Yeah, so it can be it can be a Great. little. It does take some digging for sure, but it's out there to be found. Great. Well, maybe you can send me the link and we can put in the show notes of COVID tracking project. I don't yeah. know if I've seen that one or not, but we'll put that in the show notes. It might be a great first step to check out as well if you want to kind of keep up to date on hospitalizations. Okay, yeah. so now we went to hospital with the increase of cases, um, hospitalizations, look at deaths. I found this article fascinating 
breakthrough finding reveals why certain COVID-19 patients died. Now, this is way beyond my pay grade. So I'm throwing it right back to you. It's something about an autoantibody called, I think it's inter- interferon or whatever it's called. That's, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, that somehow with COVID, it's being suppressed in, in a lot of these patients who are the patients who die. And so they're seeing, the, and you guys have mentioned before, that Mark has said it over and over and over, that sometimes your, your autoimmune system can work against you. It can switch. And I'm assuming this is what it's, what it's talking about. But can you speak into this concept and what you've seen and how relevant this is and true this might be? Yeah. So again, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to completely botch all of the biology and physiology here. So I'm not even going to try. But what <laughs> I do know is that so is there's an article, I think this one came out in Science a couple of weeks ago that was talking about this interferon cascade. I think a cascade is the right thing you can call it. I know that that's a word that okay. people sometimes use with respect to immunology. <laughs> sure. So we're just going to throw it out there. But it, the idea is that so they were looking at and trying to follow this this cohort of patients who had severe COVID infections and try to understand how can we account for this. And the majority could be accounted for by the risk factors that we already know with obesity and heart disease and these kinds of things already accounted for the bulk of the severe cases. But there was a subset of cases that could be accounted for by essentially just the makeup of the people's immune system, which was something inherent to them. And it's something that a person usually doesn't notice. You can you can move along your life just fine without you know, noticing that you have this sort of, that your immune system responds to infection in a different way. And it is only revealed when you're challenged with certain types of infections. And this happens to be one of those infections where it sort of reveals this thing, which which for many people is genetically linked. So you can inherit it and is something that you just carry with you for life. And then you don't even really know that it's there, but it can it can contribute to severe infections. So, so the argument with then was that helps explain some of these cases that don't make a lot of sense based off of the other comorbidities that we already know account for the bulk of severe infection. To my knowledge, I I think that there. I don't know. I don't know what it would take to know if if the, if you are a person who has this yeah. or not. I think that there are tests that can be done to do that, but they're not routine medical tests. So, so it's not something that I imagine is going to be like rolled out on a large scale to try to like figure out who in the population has this or not. And I, I, I can't even give like a population prevalence of like what an individual person's risk is. But nevertheless, I think that what's important about this is that it does indicate one other avenue for severe infection to manifest itself. And if we know that, then we have a better chance at treating those patients as well, because we know one of the things that is underlying their severe disease. And so that that helps a lot with clinical care, and then will hopefully help take off some of those severe cases, because they can be treated for that earlier. Yeah. No, you, I'm glad you already preemptively asked the question of that was my going to be a follow up is how can we get tested to see whether we have this and, you know, not sure we go look into it a little bit, see if there's a way to, to do it. Cause that's the first thing that came to mind in my, my own life, but uh, good. That helps put things in perspective with that. Let's get to a couple other things. CDC update. This is just quick on my end. This is going to sound almost like tongue in cheek and almost comical, but it's important to say they modified that the, and to, to explicitly state that masks do protect wearers from COVID-19. So this was an update to the CDC guidelines. The reason why I bring this up is I've heard over and over and over from a handful of friends thinking that the CDC is contradicting itself about uh, advising to wear masks. But if you read the fine print, CDC says that masks are useless. Now, I can't verify that whatsoever. And I my, my just my natural instinct is that that's just crap because it's just 
Yeah, I, yeah. Just because I, it's it's hard to, to to think of big places that are focusing on health to contradict themselves. It's usually a complex reality behind it. So it's nice to see this just be be modified. And and the, the difference is, by the way, that it was known that it was really helpful to protect those that are if we have it from other people getting it. But we're seeing there's been a lot of evidence, a lot of research this is where the CDC comes from its conclusion. And I'll put the link in where it actually has further links about the studies uh, done that actually the wear itself is being protected quite well. So another reason to wear masks, it helps both people. Okay, so let's get to the next issue, which was big. It came up this morning between you and Mark over text messaging. I got to just see it from a distance. Mark threw an article our way saying, hey, look at this, check this out. Uh, a study being done that maybe COVID had been circulating. I don't know. I didn't read it. So I'm going to make it exaggerated. So then you can correct the exaggeration. A long time before we even knew that it was actually out. And so right away, Stephen, you responded with another article saying, like like the theme of this po- podcast, it's a little bit more complicated. So when you explain the actual what Mark was trying to show and then your response. Yeah. So the article that Mark was referring to is one that came out just recently that was using serology to say they, they used serological, they analyzed like the basically the blood of people in Italy starting in September of last year. So prior to the detection okay. of COVID-19. So a couple of months, so with, with the start of the epidemic, as we know it being probably end of December, early January of this year. And they say that they found evidence of antibody response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein in people in Italy all the way up to September. And and the numbers they reported were remarkable. They said that 11% of the people whose antibodies they tested, whose blood they tested back in September in Italy demonstrated this immune response to SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. 11%, right? So that's like one in 10 people. And so from what I could tell, their conclusion was that there is evidence that SARS-CoV-2 has been circulating for much longer than than we think, and so that this may adjust our notion of the history of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay, so we need to know a little bit about how immunity works. And so coronaviruses are interesting. Many viruses do this, but we know this for sure for coronaviruses as well, that serological studies can get duped by other strains of coronaviruses. So back in 2003, there was a study in a nursing home. So 2003, this is in the context of the original SARS outbreak. It had flared up. People were really concerned about it. There had been a couple of cases outside of Hong Kong and outside of mainland China. Uh, but at this point, basically, there there were no more real confirmed cases. But then this, this nursing home in British Columbia thought that they had a cluster of SARS. And they're like, what is going on? <laughs> like, there's, uh-huh. like, and this this would have been huge, right? Like, if, if all of a sudden you had this, like, flare-up of SARS, like, that, that means that that epidemic is far from over. And they thought that it was a flare-up of SARS because of the same kind of test. They were doing antibody tests on people who had gotten severely infected with a coronavirus-like illness. And they found evidence of an immune response to SARS proteins. And they ended up doing confirmatory testing using the genetic sequence of what the patients were infected with and found that it was in fact the coronavirus OC43, which is one of the four that causes seasonal coronavirus transmission. So while the antibodies suggested that it was SARS or could be SARS, further follow-up suggested that it was one of these common coronaviruses. Now, I can almost guarantee you that, especially with 11% positivity, that 
what they're probably seeing is cross-reactivity with one of the common coronaviruses. And corroborating this is there have been a number of genomic epidemiology studies that look at the genetic diversity of SARS-CoV-2. And those are a very good way of pinning down the dates of the emergence of different infections. So you can imagine that if if one virus spills over into humans and then starts spreading, all of them are going to be related to that original virus and you're going to be able to trace it back, just like a family tree. And and that's what you do because you know, just like in a family tree where you know something about the rough time of a generation of humans, we also know something about the rough time of a generation of viruses and how quickly they mutate. And so you can take that and and triangulate back sort of where the first and when the first crossover happened. And all of the evidence that we have is very consistent that the crossover happened in and around Wuhan, China in December, probably late November, early December, and then was starting to spread and then was detected in late December. That's also corroborated by the clinical data where it, we know We've now done antibody studies. We do a lot of surveillance. We know we have a rough sense of how many cases turn into severe cases. And if it was circulating that broadly that early, we would have seen it in hospitals. Yeah. Like there's no, there's, there's no yeah. way, yeah. There's no way we would have missed that. And so, and so I think that there's, this is one of those pieces. It's just another sort of incidence here where there's, there's this really interesting finding that seems very clear cut at first. But then we need to figure out how to integrate it with all of the other information that we have. And then I think the story becomes more complex. So those are my responses to that. (laughs) That's, that's great. That's a, once you said 11%, that's my, my first thing that came is the power of anecdotal evidence. I'm like, gosh, 11%. Why did we not see what we're seeing now? Like it was like, there was nothing. We're all having a great time and everything was, so thanks for making those things come together and make sense. So caution very much. And it looks like more than likely some other some other coronavirus regular strain. Okay, so let's now talk about the holidays. So it is, I saw this article, college students from home for the holidays, how to keep families safe. I think there was a more catchy uh, title. It was like, should they even go? Go to go home for the holidays. They're coming up in just over a week. I'm curious just to poke your brain here a little bit to figure out what should students be doing, particularly being in an enormous university, many of which have seen a lot of cases being thrown around. Should they be going home? How they should be going home? How should we be addressing the holidays in the next week or so? All right. It's, this is really hard. And this is one of those yeah. things that I've been getting a lot of questions about, both from friends and colleagues and from journalists, and just to try to understand how to, how to calculate these trade-offs. And it's really hard. So I think I will say for sure that, again, all of the same principles that we've been talking about still stand. Like, it's better if you can maintain physical distance. It's better if you can keep the sizes of gatherings small. It's better if you can avoid mixing households and people who don't normally see one another. But that said, I mean, there there are plenty of good reasons why one needs to see one's family, too. And so I think that the, the thing to emphasize here is that there are things that we can do to make it more safe than it might be otherwise. And I think it's important to do those things, which include before traveling. So now, if you haven't started already, if you're thinking about traveling for Thanksgiving, try to do a self-quarantine, ideally for two weeks. We're now closer to, than that two-week period. But for as many days as you can, really try to restrict your 
interactions with other people outside the home to help make sure that you're not picking up infection and bringing it to your loved ones. Try to get tested before you go. Try to get tested when you get there. And, you know, monitor your symptoms, maintain distance, wear masks while you're inside, have conversations, try to open up windows to maintain ventilation. Just make sure that everybody knows what to expect. And so... It's tricky, but but I do think that there are lots of ways to make this time of year a lot safer than it could be otherwise, and to not totally reduce, you know, to like halt everything that all, all of the family gatherings and these kinds of things. Now, personally, I'm not going to be traveling back to Colorado for Thanksgiving. I think it's going to be much safer to stay put. You know, Thanksgiving is also the highest volume travel day of the year in the United States. So there's going to be a lot of people in airports, a lot of people mixing who wouldn't otherwise. And I think it's just better to stay put. But I, I'm not saying that as a, as a prescriptive sort of something that everybody needs to follow, but just to share sort of what, what I'm doing with this time. Um, planning to zoom in with the family, hopefully for a very long period of time, maybe we'll cook something (laughs) together and like have our normal meal over the computer. And so it's going to look very different this year, but, but I think that there's, there's so many things that we can do to help reduce risk. And I think that as long as we're doing those things, we can go a long way towards keeping the holidays from turning into another sort of venue for accelerating the upswing that we're already in. So I I read in the article and that, that the flying itself was probably as being one of the safest things you could do because of the ventilation there, the, the filters, and if everybody's wearing a mask at the same time with the, with the filters. Is that accurate? Now I get it. Now I get that you don't just hop on a plane. You actually have to go through an airport and then be inside for a long time. So, like, so that's a whole other right. issue that's like, it's not even speaking to that, right? So I'm going to pretend like that doesn't exist. Let's, let's take reality out for a second and just look at the <laughs> airplane. Like you, you apparate into an airplane, right? <laughs> I know this is not real, but just doing, is, is that an accurate thing that it seems to be if everybody's wearing masks and the filter filtration that, that it seems to be in a, a low risk environment? It seems to be, yeah, both from what we know about the spread of the virus. Like you said, they have hospital grade air filters. They get an exchange of air every three minutes or so in most plane cabins, which is like really good. It's almost as good as being outside. Everybody wearing masks is really good. So yeah, from everything that I've seen as well, actually being on the airplane is a very low risk of very low risk of transmission. So yeah, if you can find a way to just sort of like apparate onto the airplane (laughs) and and just like pop in your seat, that would be great. Uh, That's (laughs) awesome. I am going to get that technology and this will be great. We're going to figure that out. You you and I. Okay. So I have another follow-up because I just realized my wife talked about this and I didn't throw it your way, but we're past due for Thanksgiving for this timeline. I'm going to present this to you, but, but Christmas may be so. My wife is just, we're trying to prepare to see my mother-in-law. And so we could actually go indoors and just have a free and be, feel free to be with her. So we're trying to get the timeline of where do we need to be completely siloed for how long? We mentioned two weeks, but then my wife, she's, she's great at this. Her mind is just like very specific. She's like, no CDC says, and that, that says that the incubation period could be up to, up to 14 days. And then she, so her mind's like, if the incubation period is up to 14 days and then it's 10 days from when you have your symptoms to quarantine. She's saying it should be 24 days. We really want to be absolutely safe. Is that correct math of like, if you, if you're taking every precaution or the two, or or am I misunderstanding the two week window that we're typically telling people? Yeah. So I need to double check the CDC guidelines. So she's right. If, if it is truly the incubation period, then then you may want to extend that a little bit further to make sure you get through the entire infectious period. Now, once a person starts showing symptoms, you're probably infectious for a little while longer, but you, your infectiousness drops off pretty quickly 
a couple of days after you start showing symptoms and you can still feel symptoms for long after you've, you're really no longer very infectious. So I think that 14 days is still a pretty safe span of time for an individual. Now, but I'll come at it from another perspective where now this is maybe arguing for a longer, longer span of quarantine, which is so infectious or incubation period. Yes. But one of the other concerns is that, so it's not each of you isolating individually, right? Presumably your family is still going to be interacting with each other. So in theory, what you could have is if one of you were infected, then they could spread it to another and they could Uh. spread it to another. And then that would extend the period of time in which one of you was infected longer. Mm, And so accounting for the within household transmission can actually make it so that a household, if they want to be certain of not being infected or infectious with COVID needs to isolate for a longer period of time than an individual might. So that's sort of a subtle point there, but yeah. Man, that's like exponential growth for like self-quarantine per member of the family. I rely for you to get the the real information. It says nearly 95% efficacy for for the the Moderna virus, I mean the Moderna not virus, but the vaccine. Can you speak into that? <laughs> yeah, it's not a virus. That does suck. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So again, really exciting. So this is this is important on a couple of fronts. So I'm trying to think about where to start. So first, the the vaccine technology that Moderna is using is pretty much the same technology behind the Pfizer vaccine. So what it is, is a RNA-based vaccine. So what that means is, is you're actually injected with a, a short segment of the SARS-CoV-2 genome that's encapsulated in these lipid proteins that basically allow it to enter into your body. And then your body's immune system attacks that and then starts, it mounts an immune response to the, the virus genome itself. So it's really able to identify a, and the proteins that are encoded by that genome, I guess, is really what it's doing. So that's, it's really cool. It's a technology that hasn't been used for any vaccines or any therapeutics before, but the technology itself has promise for many different types of vaccines now, because rather than having to figure out what protein and how to how to encode a specific protein, you, you can in theory make these vaccines just knowing the genome sequence, which is something that we knew within days of some of the first reported cases in China. So that, so that's really cool because in theory, this gives yeah. you a template for generating vaccines against infections and also actually helping for therapeutics against some other illnesses as well. This is much further down the road, but sure. anytime your immune system is involved, which is basically with every illness that we have, yeah. these things uh, could potentially help in some way, even though that's a little further down the road. Now, the other really cool thing about these these vaccines is that it shows because both of these were the first two through the gate, it shows that these things can be done very quickly. So the next pandemic that we have, because there will be another one, you know, that that suggests that this will be a primary candidate for generating a fast, effective vaccine. So that gives us a lot of hope and helps us to sort of target and focus a lot of our efforts moving forward. So that's very good, too. So that's about the technology in general. Very cool. There's been a lot of, you know, Many people were skeptical of this technology beforehand. It wasn't really sure if it would work or how effective it would be. But the fact that these are coming back with two high-level trials coming back with 90 to 95% efficacy is is huge. I mean, this is really a big proof of concept for this technology, which is very exciting. Now, 
differences between Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. So the key thing that I'm excited about about the Moderna vaccine is that it is more shelf stable. So whereas the Pfizer vaccine needs to be stored at minus 80 degrees Celsius and can last in a refrigerator for about a week, the Moderna vaccine can be stored at minus 20 Celsius and can be stored in a fridge for about a month. And so that means that it's you don't require as robust freezers to keep it cold. You can distribute it more widely. Not, not as many doses are going to go bad if they're mishandled. And that's huge because that really expands where you can bring this vaccine to. So I think that that's really good as well. Now, there's still a lot of data to come out on efficacy by age group and whether it's actually blocking transmission as well. Yeah. That's something we still don't know, but I anticipate that it probably will at some level. I don't know if it'll be quite that same 90% efficacy. So still lots of data to come out, but these are two very good shots on goal. That's great. And again, I asked you this last week, I forgot, when might we know now with Pfizer and Moderna having these great results, those nuanced questions, is that going to be really soon within the next month uh, or so, or maybe after we start administering? We should have we should have some answers to some of those questions within the next month or so. They still haven't completed their phase three trials yet. These are some interim results that they've published. And okay. I think as soon as they finish the phase three trials, we should know a lot more about the age breakdown and some of these other important questions. But some of them we will have to wait until it's in a bigger portion of the population and then do some follow-up analysis to really know for sure. But Yeah. And of course, I have no idea between the negative 20 and negative 85 degrees Celsius. I'm a Fahrenheit dude, but I, clearly it's really cold. So I don't even know, like, is there a difference in the sense of like, when you get to that cold, does a typical freezer, like I, I have, I, my concern is, is that like a, a novel difference because either one needs a special freezer or does the negative 20, they're just more widely available, those times of freezers around the country uh, available to store them? Yeah. So a minus 20 will be a lot more available. Okay cheaper to purchase yeah. if a place doesn't have one, all of which matters a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering, I guess my always concern is having that even for a first world country like us, we can probably do that relatively easy. I'm guessing this kind of vaccine in a third world country is going to be really, really hard to, to, exactly. to, to that's going to be a whole, I, I don't even know how you would do that really. So that's, that's to be, I guess, determined. Okay. That sums it up. Thanks so much, Stephen. It's great to, to hear the good news about this vaccine. Can't wait to hear more information. If you want to reach out to Stephen uh, and get his curated Twitter feeds that he has that we learned about last week that are phenomenal, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R, reach out to us, Matt at livingthereal.com. Let us know how you're doing. If, if you have any questions, send them our way. If you're part of our community and listen to us regularly and you're around the world, let us know how it is going in your neck of the woods just to hear how you're handling it. And until then, have a wonderful week. And again, it's next week, Thanksgiving week, Stephen, right? Okay. So we need to talk, Stephen, Mark, and I, whether we'll be on next week on Thanksgiving week, because I know I'm taking some time off as well. So we may not have an episode next Monday to let you know. If you don't see anything up, that's the reason why. Or we might sneak one in. We'll see. Just want to let you know ahead of time while Mark, Stephen, and I chat about the details. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you very soon. Take care. Bye-bye.